0: Good morning. It's a joy to see you. Here we are in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 22 and 23. Guys, we've been in this book now for almost a year and a half. And we're coming now to the final stages of Luke's Gospel, which is, of course, the center of our faith. These accounts that we're reading, all of the Old Testament promises come together. Our faith is is here at the heart of these passages. Luke has been writing to this lover of God, Theophilus, that he might have certainty regarding the things that he has been taught. And we're reminded, right, that the things that he has been taught is about the king and the kingdom. That's what Luke is about. That's what the Bible is about. Someone asked you what the Bible is about? The Bible is about the king and the kingdom. The king is Christ. And the kingdom is the redemptive rule of Christ among the nations. Christ the King, His redemptive rule. And for the next few weeks, guys, we're going to be thinking about how all of this is accomplished. And so these events, again, are the center of our faith. They are the center of the message of the Bible. And we saw just two weeks ago Christ transition. Remember that Old Covenant meal, the Passover? He transitioned it from the Old Covenant Passover meal into the New Covenant communion meal. We remembered of Christ cleaning out the temple, saying it should be a house of prayer for all nations, and he stayed and taught. And so here we see this transition begin to move along. Jesus has told us time and again that he is going to be handed over, that he was going to be mocked, and that he was going to be crucified as a sacrifice for many. We've seen that. He's been telling us that time and again. And we're seeing it all come to fruition. Last week we saw Jesus struggle in the garden be handed over by his disciples. Uh, One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. That was last week. And today we consider the trials that lead up to his crucifixion. Next week we come to the cross. And so I'm calling this uh, sermon, Proven Innocent, Declared Guilty. That's what this passage is about. The point that Luke wants to make for us is that Christ was innocent. So that we might be declared innocent, but he took our guilt, though he was innocent. That's what we're going to see today. Proven innocent, declared guilty. Jesus is innocent, and so those of us that are trusting in him, we might be declared innocent, and he takes our guilt. And so as we walk through these heavy verses today, I want want you to keep this passage in mind, beloved. As we walk through this verse, I want you to keep in mind Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, which says... Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, of whom He has pointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created, or He sustains the universe. He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And again, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, this is the one that we're going to read about. The heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power will go on trial by sinful man. And say nothing other than the truth about who he is. And why? Because he loves his father. And because he loves you, Restoration Church. Don't lose sight of those verses as we walk through this. And so last week we saw in chapter 22, verse 54, friends, so as to not distract you and not distract me, I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to close my Bible. All right? It's flipping around. I have the verses right here. All right? You keep your Bibles in front. It's going to help me. You're going to be helped. Keep your Bibles open. Always keep your Bible open. When a preacher closes the Bible, that's a bad sign. But I have the verses right here. Okay? (laughs) Okay, that's going to help me. I needed to say that so as to appease my own conscience. Uh, (laughs) All right. We saw last week in chapter 22, verse 54, that Jesus was led away from the garden. Look back in verse 54 because you have your Bibles open. verse chapter two, verse 54, Jesus was led away from the garden of Gethsemane and he goes to the high priest Caiaphas's house. That's where it is. He's at Caiaphas's house. Now we know from the gospel of John there's one step that Luke doesn't record before he goes to Caiaphas's house and he goes to Caiaphas's father-in-law's house, Annas. Annas is a former high priest and Annas questions Jesus about what he's been teaching and Jesus says, "Just go talk to the people that I've been teaching out in the open." That was the first trial of Jesus. We come now uh, well, but now, as we mentioned, he's come now to Caiaphas's house. It's sometime after midnight, on Friday, early in the morning. The Passover meal, the songs, the prayers, the denials of Peter, the den- the abandonment of the disciples—all of that is just hours behind him. Jesus is alone in the house of an evil man with religious power. The cross is so near now that we can almost see its shadow in these moments. And through the night there at Caiaphas' house, false accusation after false accusation after disagreeable testimony comes up through the night as Jesus stands there listening to all of these lies. Through the veil of darkness, the religious elite have tried to figure out a way to destroy Jesus. And they're trying to come up with their path and they have it now, as we will see in a moment. And so think with me, as the daylight rises on Friday morning, they then lead Jesus out of Caiaphas's house, and they take him, and they then have a formal trial with the scribes and the Pharisees. This leads to the second trial. The first was Annas. Now here we are at the formalized second trial. In verse 67, they ask the question that they believe will condemn Jesus. If you are the Christ, tell us. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. What we call the Old Testament or the old, or the First Testament, it teaches and still teaches that there's going to come this kingly figure in the line of David and Abraham that would be sacrificed to take away the sins of his people. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. And the council is asking if Jesus believes that he is that one of whom the Scriptures prophesy. And again, Jesus has taught this out in the open. This is no secret. He's not trying to hide from this. Do you guys remember way back last year, Luke chapter 4, verse 21? Remember there where he stood up in the synagogue in a meeting just like this one? And he read from Isaiah 61. And he said, read that passage that said that the one is going to come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And remember what he did? He sat down and said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is taught openly that he is this Messiah. And so just as he told Annas, he told these people, uh, these people, this council, uh, that there's no secret as to what he has done. And so that explains his, hesita- his hesitancy in verse 67. It explains it. It reflects that he's told us that he's not going to throw pearls to swine. He understands, Jesus understands this council, don't lose sight of this, this council is not interested in the truth. They are only interested in affirming their previously held beliefs. Therefore, as he says, whatever I say is not going to make a difference. Jesus knew that. He then utters the final words that would make his identity crystal clear if it wasn't already, to those council, to those in that council, and that word, those words are cre- are crystal clear and important for us to think about. Verse sixty nine, Jesus says, "In that council, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power, power on of God. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God." What he says there, guys, is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7 regarding the Messiah. And I want you to notice the assumption that the council makes in in relation to his response. He talked about, Jesus talked about that it was the Son of Man, right? And then look at the question that comes out from the council. Are you then the Son of God? See, the council makes an equation that we too should make. That the Son of Man is the Son of God. They knew that and so should we. And Jesus says in relation to that question, are you the son of God? He says, you say that I am. You say that I am. Now, you guys may think, as I sometimes do when I read this passage, that Jesus is being coy. With his response, but listen, the response of the council makes clear that they understood that Jesus was making himself clear to say, yes, it's true. I am that one. And that was it. That's all they needed to condemn Jesus. They believed that Jesus was uttering blasphemy and blasphemy was punishable by death. They had their way to get him out of the way. Try to put yourself in that position of that counsel and you might be tempted to agree with their assessment of Jesus. I mean, just look at him for a minute. He was from the know-nothing town of Nazareth. His father was a carpenter. He had no house, much less a castle. One of his own followers had betrayed him. He was an itinerant preacher. He certainly doesn't appear to be the son of man who was the son of God. Beloved, beware of appearances. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And don't lose sight again of what Jesus intends to communicate in verse 69. In relation to this promise that Jesus is making. Remember, Hebrews tells us that it was the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross. Well, right here we see it in action. Think about this. Jesus is likely standing in front of this seated council when he makes this claim in verse 69. And so while Jesus is standing before Caiaphas and the religious elite who are seated in their own temporal power. Jesus says in the face of their accusations that the roles will be seen to be reversed in time. That's what verse 69 is all about. That's why they got so upset. Jesus is communicating that he, the son of man, will be the one that is seated instead of them. Because he will be revealed as the one that has all power since he will be seated at the right hand of the power of the majesty on high. These words mean to solidify the person and the worth of Christ. They mean to inform us about the great reversal of fortunes, that while the courts of this world may condemn Jesus as little more than some poor itinerant preacher whose power was limited to some small little region 2,000 years ago in a tiny region of Galilee, that in fact, he is the king of kings. While he may appear weak, while he may appear temporal, he is in fact the one with all authority. The elites of this world will find that out one day and they will not be able to deny it. But in these moments, they do not seek to know the truth, though they posture as though they do. And that's what we learn from this second trial, friends. Friends. What we learn is that envy ignores truth. Envy ignores truth. The envy of power and authority ignores the truth about Christ. That's what we see here. Matthew and Mark make this crystal clear that they were handing over. These scribes and Pharisees were handing Jesus over out of envy. They hate Jesus's authority. And they want to destroy him so that they might have authority. This is what envy is. This is what envy does. They are threatened by Jesus. Envy makes you want to destroy the truth, even if it's right in front of you, so as to uphold your position so that you might have your own way of life, how you want it. So, friend, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about these things, it's easy to reject the lordship of Christ by claiming to need more information. When in reality, it's not more information that you want. That's what these religious leaders were doing, claiming to need more information Information when it was actually envy that was controlling their hearts. Pastor Thabidi Anilbuile says this so well. He says, many people today hide behind what they don't know in order to avoid what they do know. I pray that's not you, friend. These guys knew who Jesus claimed to be. They knew about his miracles, but they didn't want to follow the evidence. They only wanted to confirm what they already believed about Jesus so as to keep their own position of authority, to keep their own way of life, how they wanted to go. Thibidi goes on to say this. He says, quote, you can do anything with the truth, even condemn a perfectly innocent man. The truth is more than facts, he says. Facts need to be interpreted. They know the facts, but they deny the truth. Beloved, envy ignores or denies the truth so as to gain or keep its own position of authority. I can't tell you how many times I have walked the streets of Washington, D.C. or had meals or conversations with unbelieving friends wherein their own worldview was exposed as paper. And the truthfulness of Christ was plain, and yet they refused to change. And along the way, they said they needed more information. But the reality was, though, friends, they did not desire to follow Jesus. They were like these leaders. The problem was not, in other words, with their minds, it was with their hearts. Irregardless of the truth, they didn't want the Christ of the Bible to be true because if it was, that would mean that they would have to submit to Christ's authority and not their own. And they like living in their own authority. Like these Pharisees, they envied the claims of the authority of Christ so much so that they put Jesus, these unbelieving peoples, put Jesus up on trial so as to try and gain some level of peace in their own consciousness which was condemning them. May that not be you, friend. Envy ignores the truth. The desire for personal authority and glory, friends, is strong. We see so strong in verse 63 to 65. We see what it does. The desire for personal authority and glory is so strong that not only do the religious elite deny the truthfulness of Jesus, they mock him and they beat him. That word beat in the Greek is in the present active form. In other words, they were beating him. Time and time and time again. They blindfolded him and they mocked him. About his prophetic ability. These guards were so derogatory that Luke simply says, quote, they said many other things blaspheming him. Try to imagine that scene. And as you do, friends, let it not be lost on us that this is the one that created the world and upholds the world by the word of his power. That's the same one of whom they are mocking and beating. They are beating and blaspheming the one that made them and sustains them. This is the heart of every man. This is the heart of me. This is a part of us apart from the grace of God. This is how much Jesus loves his father. This is how much Jesus loves us, his church. Well, we then come now to the third trial in chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. Third trial, Jerusalem at this point in time is under uh, occupation of Rome. So the Jewish leaders know that they cannot punish Jesus by putting him to death. They're going to have to have the Rome, Romans do that, which explains why they carry him to Pilate. Pilate at the time is the uh, is the governor of Jerusalem. And so they then bring Jesus now to him in, in the effort to put him to death. And when they bring Jesus to Pilate, they say three things. They give three pieces of, they, of what they think is evidence so as to put him to death. And their three pieces of evidence can be seen in verse 2. They can say that he's misleading their nation that Jesus is forbidding them to give tribute or tax to Caesar. And thirdly, he's claiming to be Christ a king. Two of those three are outright lies. First off, the first claim that he's misleading their nation. Well, it's evident that Jesus is leading them in the truth. The very fact that they had to trump up charges that they couldn't even agree on shows that. They, these Jewish leaders, they're the ones that are misleading the nation. And the second claim that Jesus said that he was, uh, that they claimed that Jesus was telling them to not pay tax to Caesar. We know that's not true either. Remember back in Luke 20, verse 25, when asked about paying Caesar the tax, Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And then the third claim that they offered is manipulative. That he's a king. See, what the Jewish leaders intend to do is to position Jesus as a threat to Rome so that Rome would then kill him. And so if Jesus could be seen in the eyes of Rome to be misleading the subjects of Rome, to be calling them to also not pay taxes to the true king, Caesar, because he positions himself as a king greater than Caesar, then Rome would then put him to death. That's the idea. Pilate then responds to these charges and he goes right to the heart to Jesus and he looks at Jesus in the face and he asks him, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says again, you have said so. Pilate responds to the leaders and the crowds and he says, I find no guilt in this man. Remember, guys, don't lose sight of the narrator, Luke. He's trying to communicate no guilt in this man. Now, in relation to Pilate's claim there that there's no guilt, this is going to be a theme of Pilate. We'll come back to this in a moment. But in order to understand Pilate's assessment, guys, it's important that you recall what is written in verses 63 to 65 of chapter 22 again. And you also need to recall Jesus's general silence in order to understand how Pilate is coming to this conclusion. Other than the fact that Jesus really is innocent. Remember that Pilate is looking at a man in Jesus. In these moments, he's looking at a man in Jesus that is so badly beaten up that Isaiah says of him that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. In other words, he was beaten up so badly he didn't even look like a human being. He's bludgeoned, he's bloodied. And since Jesus seems does not seem to be interested in fighting his enemies, he's, Pilate can then easily dismiss this all as a sham. He knows Jesus is innocent. Now, things are going to get worse for Pilate, but for now, he sees his way out of this mess in verse five of chapter twenty three. He says there it says there, but they were urgent. That's the crowd or that's the leaders. They were urgent saying he stirs up people. Up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And when Pilate hears Galilee, he goes, there's my out. Remember, he's the governor of Jerusalem. This guy, Herod, is the governor of Galilee. And so he asks, is he from Galilee? They say, yes. Pilate says, that's my way out. I'm going to hand him over to Herod. And by the way, guess who happens to be in town today? Herod. Off we go to Jesus' fourth trial to Herod. We read about that in verse 6 to 12. You guys should be familiar with this fox, Herod. We've read about him already. This is the same guy, Herod, that imprisoned John the baptizer because John the baptizer's views on marriage and because of the evils of which John said that Herod was committing. You remember, this same Herod had then, because of those claims, he had John put in prison. And remember, after that, Herod's Herodias's daughter, remember, she danced the dance and wanted his head. And then Herod had his head chopped off. This is the same Herod. And it was after that, if you recall, Herod hears about this Jesus and they start to think. Herod starts to think and others starts to think, is this John the baptizer raised from the dead or Elijah raised from the dead? And that then informs the eagerness with which Herod wants to meet Jesus. He's heard about him. It. It's no surprise. Look at those words in verses 7 and 8. Herod was very glad, for he long desired to see him. But did, but did Herod desire to see Jesus because he wanted to know the truth? No. Look at verse 8. Why did he long desire to see him? Verse 8 because he was hoping to see some sign done by him. In other words, Herod wanted to see Jesus like you and I would like to see Serena Williams at the U.S. Open. He wanted to see Jesus in the same way you might want to see Tom Brady at the Super Bowl. He wanted to see a good show. And what's worse for Herod is Jesus doesn't play the game. Look at verse 9. He questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. Now we might imagine Herod sitting there in all of his regalia and Jesus bludgeoned and barely recognizable. We might imagine the conversation going something like this. As Herod sits and Jesus stands there bloodied, Herod might say, So Jesus, you are the king of the Jews, are you? And Jesus responds in silence. Herod might say, Here, Jesus, take my goblet, turn it into a piece of stone. And Jesus responds, Unlike those horns, in silence. Silence. Herod, we might imagine, say, Come now, Jesus, I've heard so much about you. You have raised the dead and you've healed the lepers. If you're so powerful, show me something. Do something. Show us your power power, your might. Show us something. Show me your authority. And Jesus responds in silence. Nothing. Since the text tells us that Herod goes on like this at some length, we might imagine that it goes on like this for upwards of an hour. Remember, it's still morning. It's not yet noon on Friday. It's been a long night. But with Jesus' silence, we see Herod and his soldiers get so agitated that they not only accuse him. Verse 11 says they vehemently accuse him. They treat him with contempt and they mock him. Arraying him, it says, in splendid clothing, making fun of him. We can only imagine the insults that are hurled at Jesus in these moments. Maybe it went something like this. Something like, you claim to be a king, you're nothing, Jesus. Or they laugh at him. You claim to be a king, you're nothing. (laughs) And Jesus is silent. As he has that splendid clothing and he walks out of the room As he leaves in that room in that regal clothing, his blood staining the fabric of that regal clothing, he goes on to his next trial. And again, he does so having said nothing. Friends, beware of treating Jesus like a hobby to entertain you. Beware of treating Jesus like a guru that is there to give you your best life now. Beware of waiting on Jesus, as Herod does, to give you what you want, when you want it, and how you want it. Friends, Jesus did not humble himself and take the blows of his enemies in order to amuse us, or to give us our own personal ambitions that contradict his. No, sir, that is not why he came to suffer. So as to entertain us and just give us whatever it is we want. As Jesus was silent before Herod, friends, he will be silent before all of those that treat him with contempt. Until the day when he comes and speaks judgment upon all those that attempt to use him for their own fancies. Jesus is not a toy for your own amusement. He is the king of kings. Well, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate and Pilate calls the religious elite back together again. And this time notice he brings in the people and he says to them a second time uh, in what might be deemed a fifth trial, a kind of brief trial in verses 13 to 16. Jesus says, as they kind of bring them all back together, you told me this man was misleading the people and both me and Herod find no guilt in this man. Nothing deserving death. Every time you see an author repeating things, you should pay attention. And here we find again, the innocence of Christ. Pilate says to all the crowds and the religious leaders, listen, I'll punish him and I'll release him. Once again, Pilate tries to get away from the truth before him, but it won't work. It never does. You cannot escape the truthfulness of Christ, no matter how hard you try to create some middle position. We then move to the sixth and final trial, the ugliest one of them all, as if they were an already, all, already ugly. This sixth trial is what we might call the trial of the people. Maybe we call this the court of public opinion. In verses 18 to 25. Now these words are astonishing. They're almost too hard to read. And as we read them, we wonder to ourselves, could this be the end of the Messiah? Could this be the plot of the Prince of Peace that those angels sang about on that Christmas night? Could this be the end? Surely not, we say to ourselves. But alas... It both is and it isn't. After Pilate's attempts to pacify the wrath of the people, they cry out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Shocking turn of events. Now, during the festivities of the Passover, it was common practice, apparently, for the Romans to satiate the Jews by releasing a prisoner during the time of the Passover. And what did the Jews want? They have the option to have a king or a criminal, an innocent king or a condemned criminal. And they want the criminal. And not just any criminal in Barabbas. They want a criminal that murdered people. Friends, this is the truth of all of our hearts. When presented with the opportunity, we would rather have a criminal over our king. Again, Pilate tries, desiring, look at those words, desiring to release Jesus. He's desiring the right thing. No, friends, that desire is not enough. But the crowds keep shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Anger in their hearts. Crucifixion was a form of punishment that even the most sadistic peoples would think to be horrific. They are urging Pilate to hang their long-awaited king who had only come in peace. And Pilate says for the third and final time, why? What evil has he done? There's the repetition. What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Again, trying to find a middle ground. And then read verse 23, beloved, carefully. And know that apart from the grace of Christ, these are the cries of all of our hearts. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Mob crowds, friends, are destructive. They expose the heart of man, none more so than this one. And the pitch in the crowds becomes so much that we read those haunting words in verses 24 and 25. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And friends, it is at this point that Jesus is scourged with the cat of nine tails. It's at this point they shove the crown of thorns upon his head. As the crowds scream and wail, it is at this point to the delight of the crowds that Pilate ushers Jesus in front of them, blood streaming down his face, mocking crown upon his head. Wherein Pilate brings him up in front of those crowds and says, Behold the man! Pilate attempts to absolve himself by washing his hands before the people. It's just before noon on Friday, and away Jesus goes to carry his own cross and be crucified, having been proven innocent but declared guilty. And so as we have been warned about the religious elite who envy Jesus and his uh, his authority, as we have been warned by Herod, who saw Jesus as entertainment, beloved, may we also be warned by both Pilate and the people. Pilate knew the truth. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He even desired to release him but he didn't have the courage to do what ought to be done. Like we've seen before, he feared the people more than he feared God. He may have washed his hands in an effort to appease his own conscience, but that will not be enough in the face of God. May we learn, beloved, from the cowardice of Pilate and resolve ourselves to be courageous in the face of the throngs when they demand that they, that we, bend the knee to unrighteousness. May we be courageous on that day. It may cost us our jobs. It may cost us our safety. It may cost us our lives. Unlikely so, but it may. But beloved, know that from the first martyr of Stephen in the first century to the dozens of Christians that today will be murdered for Christ. The blood of the church screams out. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. His kingdom, Jesus, his kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, we should not expect to find a home here. We should expect, like Pilate, to be bullied to get with the program by the crowds. To get with history, where history is going. We're going to be encouraged to bow the knee to the will of man and to crucify Jesus. But, beloved, we must not do it. We cannot try and find a middle position to carve out our way to be at home here. And at home in the kingdom of heaven. We will have to choose to follow Christ or follow the crowds. And pray, beloved, pray that we would have the courage to follow Christ. And do so together in love and patience. And more so, pray that we would love Christ more than the world. Learn from Pilate, beloved. Learn from Pilate and be courageous for the glory of Christ. And also learn from the crowds. They wanted Barabbas, not Jesus. They wanted a criminal, not their Christ. Those crowds were worked up. Listen, those crowds were worked up by leaders who used them for their own glory. And so, beloved, follow men and women that lead you in the paths of righteousness for the Lord's namesake and not their own. Be men and women mighty in the scriptures. Be men and women mighty in prayer. So that you might discern when false leaders try to effectively trade Jesus for Barabbas. And so in order to do this, beloved, you're going to have to stay not only close to the word, not only close to prayer, but also, beloved, you are going to have to stay close to the flock of Christ. The church that he died to gain. You're going to have to be meaningfully part of a local church that loves Jesus and is trying to equip you to stand for the kingdom. You will not be able to stand the cries of the crowds alone. You can't do it. You need the community of faith if you are going to live in the country of faith. But most of all, beloved, trust and treasure Christ. Trust and treasure Christ. Look again for the first time at your beloved Savior. See him in trial after sham trial, freely going for you. See him in this ta- text in charge after false charge it is leveled in. See his accusation after false accusation. See him in the beating after beating, in the mocking after the mocking, and he utters not a word save the truth about who he is and the glory and the power that is set before him. Beloved, this is the love of the father. This is the love of the son. This is the love of the spirit. The Lord Jesus's life of humiliation was not his misfortune. It was his achievement. Recall that he was never a victim in all of this. Recall those words on Pentecost when Peter preached to the Jews, when he said on that fateful day in Acts chapter two, after the resurrection and ascension, men of Judea, we might say men and women of Washington, D.C., hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was according to the plan of God before the foundation of the world that happened. And so, beloved, from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to the chief priests to the scribes to Herod, all the way to the people as they laughed at him and they beat him and they falsely accused him and eventually crucify him, at no point were they ever in control. Yet they were responsible. It was all done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God so that you and I would see the heart of our sin. But all the more that you would see the heart of the God that we rebelled against. That God so loved the world that he sent this son into these sham trials and into this crucifixion. The creator of the world, the one that upholds the universe, was even doing it as people were beating him. He was upholding those people that were beating him. He became silent and like a lamb was led to the slaughter. He was led so that you and I would not have to be led to the slaughter. So that we might come home to God. So that we would know his life and his love. All of this was done in accordance with his good and free and glad and happy plan. And so, therefore, as I conclude here, friends. As one pastor has said. Before you understand the cross was done for us. You must understand that it was first done something by us. At some level, beloved, we have all been Pilate. We have all been Caiaphas. We have all been Herod. We have all been the crowds. We were there in the crowds. You have to see yourself this way. We were there in the crowds calling out, crucify him in our hearts. We called for Barabbas. And wonder of wonders. This is why Jesus came. So that like Barabbas, listen, so that like Barabbas, we sinners might go free since the Savior has taken our place. Since he went to be sacrificed in our place and we, the sinners like Barabbas, might go free. In every case, Christ was counted and proven innocent. He was declared guilty so that we who are guilty might be declared innocent in him. Christ was condemned so that all of us who hope in him might not be condemned. Christ was numbered with the transgressors so that we who are transgressors would not be numbered with him. Christ was judged so that we would not have to be judged. Christ was eventually crucified so that we would not have to be crucified. Beloved, listen, by Jesus's stripes, we are healed. This is the love of God. This restoration church is your savior, your king, your gospel. Listen to me. Don't follow Caiaphas. Don't follow Herod. Don't follow Pilate. Don't follow the crowds. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. And soon enough, we will see the world, uh, we will, so- soon enough the world will see Jesus seated at the right hand of the power of the majesty on high because Jesus is the heir of all things. He did create the world. He, the beaten and mocked one, is the one that possesses the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we will see even next week that he will do all of this as he reigns from a cross. Trust him and treasure him, beloved. Let's pray to him now. Lord God Almighty, we give praise to you this day. Jesus, we praise you that according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of you, you entered into the world to be treated as a criminal so that we might be treated as though we were not, even though we are. We thank you for this glorious testimony. Jesus, we praise you. For the ways that you willingly and freely and silently went to the cross. So that we wouldn't have to be. I pray for those that are not trusting in Christ. May they come to not just seek more information. May they repent and believe on him who took their place. And may we all trust him and treasure him together. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.